Well, welcome to the Someone to Tell To podcast. So nice to have you join us again, or maybe for the very first time. We have such a faithful tribe of listeners, and we hope that only continues to grow in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Before we get into today's program, which we can honestly say may be one of the most important episodes thus far, especially in America, we did want to encourage everyone to take a moment and hit that subscribe button. If you're anything like the two of us who are at this point, we call ourselves podcast junkies, you can actively listen to those programs which you hit subscribe to. So please hit that subscribe button and encourage others to do the same. So now on to today's program. There's this growing, even violent division in communities across America. This polarizing trend is affecting society at large as well as schools, workplaces, and personal relationships, perhaps including your own. The problem is that increasingly in America today, we don't just disagree. We dislike, distrust, even despise those who see the world differently. We're withdrawing from conversations, eroding relationships and understanding. 75% of Americans say this problem has reached a crisis level. Experts say that the solution is to cultivate more positive social connections, which we agree with wholeheartedly. Thankfully, 75% of Americans are willing to practice conversations across divides, and 36% More than 100 million people want to see a national campaign to that end. Listen First Project is fueling that movement. We believe in the power of starting new conversations that move us versus them toward me and you to turn the tide of rising rancor and deepening division. Listen First Project creates opportunities and teaches skills for conversations that tip the scales toward a stronger and more equitable future for our nation and better relationships in our daily lives. We pursue this mission in multiple arenas. Pierce Godwin is founder and CEO of Listen First Project, executive director of National Conversation Project, and leader of the Listen First Coalition with 250 partner organizations in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. He is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Duke University. He writes, I was on an overnight bus ride across Africa after spending six months in Uganda with an international development organization. I was so looking forward to returning home, but was deeply troubled by news that my beloved North Carolina had been gripped by the same rancor and vitriol that I'd left behind in Washington where I had previously worked. Unable to sleep, I wrote, it's time to listen. That message jumped over the ocean and was printed in dozens of major newspapers across the United States from Miami Herald to the Oklahoman. Emboldened by the resonance of such a simple idea, we launched Listen First Project to encourage conversations that bridge divides. Dr. Graham Bodie. Listen First Project's Chief Listening Officer, is Professor of Integrated Marketing Communication in the School of Journalism and New Media at the University of Mississippi. He is a graduate of Purdue and Auburn Universities. He has won numerous awards and honors for his work. Graham writes, 
My research, teaching, and consulting center on how to improve listening for better relationships with family, friends, coworkers, customers, clients, siblings, kids. Heck, even the cashier at the local gas station wants to be listened to. I truly believe in the power of effective listening for living more productive and filling lives. Let me help you discover how to be a better listener. Pierce and Graham, welcome to you both. We just want to say uh, it was last December that we were we were together with you the last time out in Los Angeles or even more fancily Hollywood and and filming a public service announcement. And yes. we remember that that trip and that time together with you with great fondness. It was a lot of fun. We hope that we did something important and we were just grateful that we had the opportunity to uh, to do that with you. So we are excited to have you on this podcast today. So first, Pierce, start with you. Such an honor to be here. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Yeah. Thank you. So Pierce, we want to uh, we want you to tell us what your message was when you wrote "It's Time to Listen," which was the article that was the catalyst that launched the Listen First project. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. And and Michael, I think. Uh, that message would not have have come to mind and ended up as a blog post and ended up as a column that has now become uh, the listen first movement if not for you know the context i was living uh, at that point in time and where i had come from there in 2013 so you know after you know graduating with a major in public policy i went and spent 5 years up in washington dc and and i've always been a political animal and loved the competition of ideas and elections and and all that good stuff so i was very much at home uh, in Washington, but at the same time, you know, found myself uh, thinking that you know perhaps you know th there was there was something uh, bigger and, and and a lot a lot farther than than my own ends um, that I may want to be a part of um, as a next stage of life, uh, and, and so that was going to take me home to North Carolina. But in the meantime, I had an opportunity to go spend six months in Uganda with the Christian International Relief Organization before returning home. To North Carolina, and, and certainly um, it, it's exactly what I was looking for in the sense of something that was that was very uh, different than than my experience in in Washington. That I felt like for for me and and for a lot of of what we see in that kind of environment, not just in D.C. but across the country, was very me focused and very much about about striving and and achievement. Suffice it to say that experience in Uganda was 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 very different, and it was a profound and spectacular one. And one thing that, that struck me, even before I had the thoughts that led to that it's time to listen uh, essay, was just this, this really stark juxtaposition where, you know, in Uganda, in the area in, in Uganda and in Africa in, in which I was working, um, you have certainly relative material poverty uh, relative to the United States of America, but such incredible spiritual and relational richness. And so that's what I had experienced for six months. And as much as I had tried to uh, be very present in that situation, uh, I had learned that my beloved little home state of North Carolina, where we just say, bless your heart and everything's okay, at least that's how we feel on the surface, um, that even outside of Washington, which I had left, I was going to be coming home to a place where the vitriol and the rancor and the dehumanization across differences had reached a fever pitch. My own backyard in North Carolina was making national news in the summer of 2013 um, for just that kind of discord. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I'm heading back to the most prosperous nation in the world. Um, and this is the way we're treating one another um, because of different 
worldviews. Um, and, and so without that six month experience in Uganda, that juxtaposition of such a relationally rich and spiritually rich environment, even amidst material poverty, um, looking back at the U.S. And, and seeing that division would not have seen nearly a name as it did to me in that moment. So the, the message, which frankly was, was you know, frustrated um, thoughts and, and just exacerbated thoughts as much as anything was, man, can we not move beyond slander and seek common ground? How can we hope for a healthy, prosperous nation if we keep demagoguing our neighbors because they see the world differently? And, and just off the top of my head, having you know no idea of, of the kind of passion that is out there that you all represent for listening specifically, just off the top of my head, it was kind of, we, we really ought to listen to each other. I feel like it's, it's time to listen um, and to gain an understanding of where people are coming from, even if they see the world differently. And so that was the basic message uh, and call in that blog post that the next thing I knew was in papers uh, across the country and creating something you know, so much bigger than, than thoughts on an overnight bus ride in Africa. So you wrote that article back in 2013, is that right? Yeah, yes, sir. And how do you believe like the discourse has changed in America, <laughs> American society since then? Has it changed? Yeah, I, you know, when, when I talk about and, and tell that story today, Tom, you know, I, I just have to laugh because this was 2013 and, and how quaint were those times relative to today? I think a lot of us would, would, would gladly dial the clock back uh, to 2013. And uh, so I, I, think, uh, I think honestly it has, it has worsened. It has only gotten more and more coarse. And uh, so, you know, one way to look at it is, uh, is the opportunity continues to increase. 75% of Americans say this social polarization is at a crisis level and, and, and another 75% are willing to do something about it. So great. The opportunity has increased. People are kind of waking up to it. Everybody has their, you know, for me, African bus ride moment where they say, this just isn't something that that, that can sustain us as a culture. Let's, let's do something about it. More and more people are having that moment. But it is certainly, I'm afraid, in those last six years, moved uh, pretty decidedly in the wrong direction. How, how do how do you uh, think it's it's shifted globally? Great question. When uh, when we started, you know, Listen First Project, and when some of my friends in, in Uganda, you know, heard about what what those musings had um, had become, they said, "Hey, we want to start uh, we want to start uh, a Listen First Project here in Uganda." And I said, "Hey, you know, that's nice. Certainly, I'm I'm guilty of of a bit of an Americentric." You know, view and so my interest was was very much focused on the United States. But I think what I've come to better appreciate as we've had you know global entities and global networks become a part of the Listen First Coalition um, is that this truly is a global problem. And and Graham uh, can talk about an experience he just recently had in Ethiopia, which really brought that to the forefront as well. But we've seen recently folks in Nigeria, folks in in the Netherlands, again in Uganda. Um, and Graham will speak to Ethiopia, say, look, we've got these problems too. We're having trouble relating across divides and, and it is fraying our social fabric. This is not just an American thing. It's something that is, uh, has really coarsened our rhetoric and our relationships across differences worldwide. But, but Graham, talk about Ethiopia, such, a, such an inspiring story that, that he was able to be a part of. Before you do, we have a question because we want to hear about that. That would be tremendous. But first, can you, can you please tell us what inspired you to join with Pierce to become a leader in the Listen First project? Sure. And at first, you know, hey, how's it going? Thank <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. you for having us uh, on this uh, Yeah, absolutely. And for, for what you're doing uh, for the larger, um, you know, for the larger society in terms of 
fostering listening. Um, you know, I, I joke and I say Pierce and I met on this little dating app called Twitter. <laughs> um, nice. Back, uh, back in. Uh, that's how, actually, that's how we met. Too. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. All the greatest met. partnerships. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Yeah. Back, back in 2014. Um, so I've, I've been an academic my whole adult life, um, sitting, you know, behind my computer screen, pontificating and, and writing up research reports on um, listening and what it means to listen and what the benefits are in personal relationships. And in 2014, my research got covered by the Wall Street Journal. And as a function of that piece, I was contacted um, by um, a, a gentleman in Houston who's still one of my uh, clients. And he said, I, I want you to come and teach my sales team how to listen better and, and, and not just for personal gain or profit, but I want to make my employees better people. Uh, and so he's been a champion of, of the larger, um, you know, making people better people through listening, um, at least since then, uh, with me in particular. And as a function of my work with this uh, company, um, I saw firsthand just how important this skill is and, and how, um, how we don't often take it seriously. I had people coming up to me after sessions saying things like, if I had met you 20 years ago, I might still be married. I had a gentleman come up to me and say, I, I tried what you told me last night and um, my wife and I had our first real conversation in five years and he had tears in his eyes. And this is like a 50 year old, you know, six foot two, 250 pound man. Um, and, and, you know, I've certainly seen change in college students and I've certainly seen some, you know, some movement with academic articles, but nothing in terms of life change that I saw, uh, in those sort of just experientially in those moments with these real people. And so I started to get on social media and, and the reason I started with Twitter is because I started to get on social media and kind of try to figure out how to put myself out there more as a public intellectual as opposed to simply an academic who writes in, in journals. And one of the first accounts that I saw was this account called Listen First Project. I was so excited because I was like, there's actually like a whole organization out there who is using this terminology that I had been using in my teaching and my consulting work to that point, which is I'm, I'm, I want to come in and I want to make a Listen First culture or a Listen First organization. Uh, I didn't want to go in and do a dog and pony show. I didn't want to go do a one-off. I wanted to actually change culture inside of businesses and organizations. And so I reached out to Pierce and um, we started talking um, and I wanted to kind of put academic legs behind some of the wonderful outreach and work that, that he was doing with Listen First Project. And then fast forward a couple of months, um, my life shifted from uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana to the University of Mississippi here in Oxford. And I landed in a school of journalism and new media as opposed to where I was. And there was much more emphasis and much more interest in me as an outward facing um, sort of public intellectual, um, which was a nice fit because Pierce kept bugging me to be on the advisory board. And then he kept giving me little promotions um, and new titles, uh, you know, every, every couple of weeks because of the work that I was doing. So we, we really started the relationship almost, um, you know, I thought it would be a nice little, you know, couple of months and I would do a little bit of work and it's turned into over two years um, at this point, um, maybe three years. How long has it been? At least over two years um, at this point um, doing um, doing some pretty meaningful work and seeing 
uh, how this kind of work can, can change lives. Yeah. And in all seriousness, I mean, we did meet you guys on Twitter, but we were so happy to learn of all of these other communities that are, that are involved in this listening space, just like you guys. And, and so to be able to join forces together and, and, you know, really trying to address this epidemic of disconnection that we're seeing around the world. Uh, it's, it's been quite a journey, let's say that. Um, so looking back on it for you guys, was there a moment when you're like, we're really onto something here? Yeah. A couple of, of moments come to mind, Tom. And, and one, uh, you know, I did a, a part-time MBA program the last couple of years. And at that time, this is right when, when Graham and I had, had gotten to know each other. Um, you know, I still had a full-time marketing job um, here in, in North Carolina uh, where I live. And, and Listen First Project was, you know, kind of a side gig um, that, that was I was cultivating and we had put the pledge out there. I will listen first to understand, you know, 10,000 folks had had signed the pledge and, and it was growing. And that was that was nice. But um, but it was still something that I was I was passionate about, but doing, you know, in the margins of, of life when I could evenings and weekends. Um, and I'll never forget, um, you know, just the brief little introductions that we went around the 45 of us in the MBA class and said, what do we do? And, you know, I said, oh, you know, I do survey research, marketing job, and I have this nonprofit on the side and gave just a little a little taste of what Listen First Project was all about. Um, and, you know, in a group of MBA students, nobody was particularly moved by um, by the fact that I was doing marketing uh, as my day job, but several people came up to me afterwards and said, "I want to, I want to hear more about Listen First Project. What is this thing all about?" And, and the one that that really sticks out in my mind is, is one of my colleagues, um, fellow students um, named Caroline, and and she said, uh, "You know, Pierce, um, I, I'm I'm a pretty um, liberal person. You know, vote vote Democrat, and uh, and when President Trump was." was elected in November of 2016, and this conversation happened in February of 2017, she said, you know, I was despondent. Uh, I was in the fetal position. I was devastated for this nation. And obviously, you know, different people had different perspectives, but this is where she was coming from. Um, and, and she said, Pierce, when I heard you just spend a few seconds talking about, you know, Listen First Project and what, you know, you guys are working on, I had hope for America for the first time in months. Um, and I, that just gave me chills. You know, I had my own my own thinking and my own drives and my own passions that I was pouring into this. But but that really stopped me in my tracks to hear somebody say this basic idea, which is exactly what you all promote as well, of, of compassionate listening and, and finding that humanity um, in somebody else gave somebody hope for the country for the first time in months in light of, you know, how they felt about the recent presidential election um, really, um, really deeply moved me and told me there's something, there's something very personal here. And there's something here that, that more than just, just Graham and I uh, can get excited about. Uh, the other thing I'd point to is, as you alluded to Tom, just the number of organizations that are out there wanting to do this work. So in 2017, you know, I, I realized that, oh my gosh, it's not just, you know, little old me who wrote a blog once and is trying to push forward this pledge, but there are other organizations. So why don't we have a coalition? Why don't we see how we can aggregate, align, amplify all of these, you know, different projects and different localized efforts into something bigger than any one of us? And we launched the Listen First Coalition then with five organizations. And today they're around 250, which has just been mind blowing. And that's certainly has um, has told me that 
that we're onto something. And to see that group come together and build a national week of conversation in 2018, to see that happen again this past April, and, and to see the Listen First movement as a whole covered by journalists at, at all three of the networks, Fox News, MSNBC, uh, and CNN, and to see the, you know this, this basic Listen First hashtag reach 5 million people during national week of conversation alone um, have all been moments when I said, wow, this is, this is more than a dream. This is really beginning to take traction. And then the final thing I'll point to, uh, Graham was directly involved in. Um, we, there was you know, one random Saturday morning, I'm catching up on, on social media, and, uh, and, and we see a, a tweet from somebody that says, you know, thank God I heard about Listen First Project before my 11-year-old son came home and asked me about the Kavanaugh hearings and asked me to explain to him what was going on and, and, and what, what, what he was hearing about in school. Um, and I, we, we just thought, wow, that's personal. That the idea of somebody having in their mind that they would listen first to understand and having a conversation with their child. And then she proceeded to, to send us a picture of the listen first bracelet on her wrist. And we said, oh man, how did that happen? And it was a nurse uh, at a school in Oxford, Mississippi, where Graham is, um, who had seen a pile of bracelets that Graham had left after having a meeting there. And she had thrown one on and taken it to heart and then directly applied that spirit um, in a tough conversation with, uh, with her young son. So that, that really uh, encouraged us that this was having an impact in a really personal way. Mm. There's nothing better than knowing that you are having an impact, is there? Than knowing that you have yes. touched people, you've moved their lives, you've changed something, and you've uh, given them an opportunity to, to, you know, to do something better to do something, something perhaps that they've never done before, which is tremendous. So could you tell us what you guys teach? What, you know, what do you encourage others to do to help bring down the intensity, you know, in, in our conversations and the tension that is in our relationships? Yeah. You know, as Graham looked out over Twitter and said, wow, there's an organization that's, you know, promoting this publicly. I looked and I saw, wow, there's somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. And there's such a thing as a listening scholar. And I, I never knew that was such a thing, but, but, but we, but, but we found the guy. So uh, Graham, speak to, speak to the kind of practices and skills. And then I, I'd love to hear you share, you know, how you did it recently in that global context with Ethiopia as well. Yeah. We haven't forgotten about Ethiopia. So thank yeah. you. Ooh. Thank you for helping I mean, us get back to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think um, if you look across the the spectrum of these organizations, from those that focus specifically on listening uh, to those that you know mention listening, to even those that don't really say the word listening, but say things that are really synonyms like being responsive or trying to understand or seeking understanding or being non-judgmental or whatever these other terms are, um, you know, everybody has their own top 10 list and we certainly have our top 10 list. And, and it's not like, well, you, if you do these 10 things, then you're going to be a good listener and then it's magic. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's no problems, right? I think first and foremost, and I've heard you guys say this as well. I mean, it's a mindset, right? It's, it's what, are your priorities? What are what are your beliefs? What's driving your listening? What are the motivations that are driving how you interact with others? So, when when I teach listening, whether it's an undergraduate level or to a group of, of adult learners, um, you know, there's a lot of these um, kind of you know three part divisions. And so I, I'll talk about listening as as an attitude, as a mindset, right? First of all, um, as this affective kind of motivational component. Uh, and then secondly, listening is certainly 
what's in your head, um, you know, cognitive and, and uh, process-wise. So all of the things that, that your brain does either unconsciously or how you process things uh, consciously, but with certain biases. And so we've got to uncover some of those biases. Uh, and depending on people's individual barriers to listening, we can uh, come up with different activities about how they can um, not necessarily overcome, but at least deal with and work within those biases. Um, and then finally, listening is a set of behaviors, right? So there's things that you do outwardly that, that show people that you're actually attending to them. Um, and I, I end with behaviors, not because they're, um, you know, uh, unimportant, uh, but because they're the last thing you ought to be focused on when you're learning to be a better listener. You ought not start by, you know, head nod, say yes, uh-huh. You know, <laughs> robots can do that, right? Computers uh, can do that. We, we can train, you know, uh, Watson to be a good listener if good listening is merely, um, you know, engaging in some of these quote-unquote active listening behaviors, which is really the problem with that paradigm in general, uh, e even though um, uh, in its truest sense, active listening simply just means the active presence and attention uh, of others. But if all we do is focus on the behaviors, um, then we're missing the whole point of what it really means to be a good listener, which is to look inside ourselves and figure out what we're doing that may be um, you know, not centered first and foremost on the fact that there's another person who deserves our attention and who deserves to be loved because they're a person. Um, and you guys are fond of Mr. Rogers and I'm fond of Mr. Rogers for that reason too, because I think that's kind of what he taught and what he taught children, um, with, with respect to being respectful, non-judgmental and meeting people, uh, where they are. Um, and so I, I take that kind of to heart and I've tried to meet groups of people, whether they're students or adult learners, where they are and figure out what their primary kind of drivers of listening are. I use a particular instrument called the echo listening profile to do that. Um, but I've done it in other ways as well for organizations that, um, you know, don't have the, the time or the resources to, to invest in, um, you know, the assessment we, we can we can get um, to, you know, barriers in other ways as well. Yeah, we recently connected with Dana and took the echo listening pro profile ourselves, which we found to be very, very helpful. And maybe you could just take a minute briefly talk about Echo and the different types of profiles or just a, a general overview. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've been working with um, Dana for over two years uh, on the profile, hoping to do some some of the validity um, research uh, behind it. Um, and, and basically, what we know is that, that we are socialized to uh, listen in particular ways. Uh, that because of our life experiences, we have a tendency to listen to and for certain types of information. It's not hardwired into us. It's not like we're born to be listeners of a certain type, uh, but we certainly are raised in particular ways, uh, both in the home and particularly at work, to listen to our colleagues and our friends and our family members in particular ways. And you can certainly have certain habits that manifest themselves with friendship relationships or personal relationships that don't necessarily manifest themselves with professional relationships. Um, but it is true that whatever context you're in, you kind of have a knee-jerk, habitual way of listening. And we talk about it in terms of two kind of underlying continuum uh, and then four primary habits. So the first kind of, um, it's not a dichotomy, but the first kind of comparison uh, is between what, they, uh, what, what we call connective and uh, reflective listening. So you can listen to and for how the incoming message um, uh, is likely to influence other people um, rather than influence you in particular. Um, so it's a very relationally or emotionally focused uh, type of listening where you're listening to and for 
how is this information impacting my team and other people? Um, so that's one end of that kind of continuum. And the other end of that continuum is that you process information through and filter information through what it means for me and my needs and my wants. And that sounds selfish, but, and it's not meant to be, it's not a selfish type of listening. It's more a, I tend to or habitually go toward my personal experience, uh, first and foremost, as opposed to other people first and foremost. Um, so the, the first continuum is kind of how you listen to relationally oriented uh, elements of messages, whereas the other continuum, which goes from analytic to conceptual, focuses more on the content itself. So an analytical listener will listen for what is, facts, data, uh, whereas conceptual listeners tend to listen for what is possible. So they're your brainstormers, your abstract thinkers, um, your possibility seekers. Um, it's not that conceptual listeners can't listen for facts, and it's not that analyticals uh, can't have theories of things, but it's just what you tend to listen to and for primarily, or at least initially. And all of these cluster in many ways. We, we, it, it, we all have these habits within us. It's not that I'm only connective or I'm only reflective and so forth. We all have different shades of these habits kind of within our mind, within our brain. Um, but it's just what we uh, tend toward, um, you know, habitually, particularly in novel situations. Um, and um, those can mix in different kind of ways. And so no one profile is exactly the same. Um, the, 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 uh, the assessment generates one of uh, 41 different profiles. But, but even within those 41 different profiles, there's some variability in terms of how strongly someone, um, you know, habitually orients toward one or the other of these, of these um, styles. Yeah, we found it to be very helpful just as we work in teams to just have a variety of types of mm -hmm. listeners on your team because we all do listen in different ways and listen for different things is kind of what we're hearing you say. Yeah, it's a, it's a proxy for cognitive diversity, if you want to think about it that way, right? So how do you structure your team for the best kind of efficiency and effectiveness? Well, you would want, like you said, different people listening to and for different types of information um, so that you can, you know, somewhat avoid that scenario where you go to a meeting and you, and you leave and you realize that you each just went to eight different meetings and you're frustrated about that. Rather than getting frustrated about that, you kind of embrace that diversity uh, and to, and for some kind of collective thinking um, so that the team can be stronger and more productive. Yeah, makes, makes great sense. You've already talked a bit, both of you, about some of the, the results that you've seen in, in your work and in your mission, the, the comments you've re received that you changed somebody's life, that you help someone avoid a conversation or, or have a better conversation. And, and so perhaps this is a good transition. To, apparently, you had a very good experience, Graham, in Ethiopia. And we'd like to hear about that and what some of the results of that, that was, were, and, and what you experienced there. Absolutely. Yeah, so I was invited to go over to Ethiopia by the uh, Minister of Peace. Um, she is part of um, the Cabinet of Ministers um, under the new Prime Minister who um, was um, appointed um, a little bit over a year uh, ago, but you know between 12 and 18 months ago. Uh, and I was, I was brought in because a colleague of mine introduced her to the work that I'd been doing with uh, Pierce and Listen First Project um, and, and around this notion of, of how do we build a culture of listening? Um, you know, and, and I've talked about it in terms of organizations and, and the Minister of Peace, she was interested in how do we do this in a country 
that is a uh, growing democracy, although they've had a constitution um, for, a, for a couple of decades, uh, the way that the government has functioned and been structured over those decades has been more one more of uh, power struggles um, with competing ethnicities rather than those groups working together to affect positive change. And so the new prime minister that is there is all about, um, you know, uh, dialogue, deliberation, and coming to not necessarily consensus, but that's certainly one mode that he's interested in exploring. Um, and so I was invited to do workshops and, um, you know, I, I kind of knew that it was, um, you know, a big deal to, to, to go over there uh, with this group of people. I didn't know how big of a deal until about two or three days before I left. My colleague came in my office and his eyes were big and he was smiling and he said, this has never happened before. These, and he, and he said, pull your email up and look at your email. And he said, do you see these people on the list? Of course I did have no idea who they are, right? Just these random Ethiopian <laughs> okay. names. I have no idea who these people are. I'm like, yeah, there's some people. And he said, you don't understand. These people have never been in the same room together ever. And so I, I, was, I thought, wow. And then I thought, oh, crap. Um, that's a big <laughs> deal. Like I, now I have to really think about um, uh, what am I doing and, and, and why am I doing it? Um, and to that, um, we fly over uh, on a, we leave on a Saturday, um, Saturday morning, 930 Chicago time. While we're in the air, um, there's an attempted coup on the government. Um, and, and the story is basically that this, um, this uh, head of one of the states um, had, uh, the prime minister had released him from prison. He was a government um, prisoner. Um, and one of the prime minister's first acts as prime minister was to release um, all uh, government um, prisoners because most of them were put into jail for reasons such as like, well, they were talking bad against the government had nothing really to do with the fact that they did anything bad. Well, this guy had actually tried to overthrow the government five or 10 years ago. Uh, but the rationale was put him in power, give him some power so that he has power. Now he doesn't want power. Now he'll work within the system, right? Well, that didn't work. Um, you know, 12 months or so after his release, he tries to throw overthrow the government. We land, we learn of this. We get shuttled to our hotel and told, like, you know, don't come out of the hotel until we contact you. There's no internet connection. They've shut down all of the internet. Um, and so that was on Sunday. Um, I'm, I'm supposed to start my workshops on Tuesday. And so we're unsure about whether that will happen until Monday night. And then Monday night, we hear from the, uh, from the Minister of Peace, we're definitely a go for tomorrow. We might start a little bit late, but we're, we're coming. Um, and so 25 people show up. Well, then I learned um, an hour before I was supposed to start that one of the people that was supposed to be in that um, group was this person who tried to overthrow the government. Wow. Wow. So, so the, these are, these are the, you know, this is the context within which I start on the first day asking them what it means to them to listen. What does it mean for them to build a culture of listening? What would it mean to live in a society where we, uh, where, where we are divided and polarized, but we listen? How do we maintain uh, some semblance of civility in light of rancor? How can we listen to each other without judgment, create safe environments where everybody trusts and supports each other? How do we develop this culture of listen where we listen to ideas and views that we strongly disagree with, but move forward together 
rather than in our separate camps. And so it was highly meaningful. It would have been meaningful anyway, but it was even more salient and meaningful because of the context we were in. And um, so much so that both the first day and the second day, when we were supposed to take tea breaks, which is like a huge deal in this culture, they take long tea breaks and it's, you know, they refused to go on break. Uh, rather, uh, you know, basically saying to me, no, we have to finish this conversation. No, we have to finish this discussion. And so I was moved by the, um, the tenacity in a good way of the people that were, uh, that, that ended up coming to the event, which were slightly different from the people who were supposed to be there originally. But there were still five ministers, government level ministers, several of their staff, uh, several um, opposition leaders and activists and so forth that were there. Um, and um, it, it ended, um, you know, there was three days of workshops. It ended with a more of a personal reflection, some of the stuff that I often do with organizations. Um, and, then it, and, and then we had conversations that afternoon about how they're going to be translating a lot of this work into um, various um, languages that are primary over in Ethiopia um, and how they're going to, to, to specifically adopt a lot of the, the kind of theoretical models that we uh, played with, how they're going to adapt those to and go out into um, the, the country to, to affect change through conversation. So, um, and we're still having those conversations with them about um, how to help affect that change. Well, congratulations. What an honor for you to be able to be invited into such a... Yeah, it really was. I mean, to yeah. be invited, first of all, and then and then actually be able to do it. Yeah, you know? that's fantastic. It certainly is. Uh, so on that, one one of the things I was just thinking, you talk about being non-judgmental, and that's something we talk a lot about even in our own training. How do people withhold judgment? <laughs> uh, well, if I could answer that, I might be a millionaire. Um, how do we withhold judgment? <laughs> There's a lot of you know tricks out there. The, the one that I've um, latched onto lately that I really love it, uh, comes from actually the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation here in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and part of their guidelines for what they call the welcome table, it's, it's like number four or something on their list, is turn to wonder. Um, when you feel yourself building up judgment, when you feel yourself wanting to react and you know give someone a piece of your mind, when you want to insert your own opinions, turn to wonder. I wonder what has happened in this person's life to bring them to the point that they are right now. What's, what's their life experience? What, what is it from their childhood or their adulthood or their relationships or whatever the case might be? What, what is it? And it really is sort of this curiosity, right? This, this insatiable curiosity of the person and their life experiences. It's not a like, well, why could you think that? Or how in the world could you think that? It's not that kind of wonder. It really is an, a genuine curiosity to, look, we don't wake up, right? On, you know, at six o'clock in the morning, whenever we wake up, right? We wake up and go, you know what? I'd like to have some wrong beliefs. <laughs> right? I, I'd, I'd like to be wrong. Right? We, we all wake up really honestly believing what it is that we believe. And so if, if, if I wake up believing what I believe, and I assume that other people wake up believing what they believe, then it's my job as a listener to try to figure out what it is about them that's made them believe that way and like really be curious about their, that and listen and be open 
to the possibility that their life experience has made them a different person than I am. And that's okay. Wow. We're going to, we're going to take that with Uh, us. Turn to wonder. That is a beautiful statement. And uh, yeah, we're going to use that one. (laughs) That really is nice. Just as another point. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) so we can steal it from you too. (laughs) All the best writers do. Yeah. Actually, as a point of encouragement, I mean, just as a story, um, you know, of how this is being played out here in our country among even some of our own friends. I had a, a friend of mine who is from rural Pennsylvania, and shortly after the election, she went back home. Uh, she's an adult now uh, to where she grew up, and she reconnected with some of her friends that she grew up with and they got on the subject of politics as all of us do uh somehow or another and the one uh friend of hers still lives back home where she grew up and was expressing her own political viewpoints and the friend that we know who's connected with our work uh, started asking her more questions being curious and then asked her what her political views were. And since she's moved away, her political viewpoints have changed significantly. And so she expressed what her viewpoints were. And the person who was listening at that moment had kind of a, uh, you know, just not a helpful response. And she was not being curious and, and not expressing wonder. And as a result, it just kind of killed the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and we wonder how much that happens in, in conversations in this day and age. And, and Pierce, this is a good opportunity to bring you back into the, to the conversation. You talk about this rancor and the frank fabric of society. Uh, yeah. Why do you think that is occurring, particularly here in our country? And, yeah. and how do you know if your mission is being effective? Yeah, there, there are so many, I think, contributing factors. Um, I'll start with what we as Americans tend to blame uh, for this social polarization crisis. 75% say it's the politicians' fault, like, right? That, that's easy. Let's just blame everybody in Washington. It's, it's those guys and girls. Um, so 75% say it's politicians, 69% say it's internet, social media, and then 59% say it's the news media. Obviously, there's a lot of truth in, in all of that, but that's where you know surveys show Americans place the blame. Uh, but I think, and one thing that, that we so admire and find inspiration in from your work is that that you are dealing with the deep personal relationships and, and at the level of isolation, at the level of loneliness and, and deep pain. And I think it does come back to that, that human nature that I have just as much as anybody serving us in Washington has. And it's this human nature to be tribal, tri- tribal and to fall into this us versus them mentality. And one of the ways we talk about our work is is to move from us versus them to me and you. But I think we know from social psychologists that all of us find identity and belonging as part of a group. And, and often that is kind of solidified in opposition to another group. Uh, so that's something that we're seeing happen across so many different dimensions today. You know, political, I think, only only scratches 
the surface. Um, but as you do think about, you know, the political space and the conversation your, your friend had or, or did not have, you know, we've, we've had real diverging reactions to what, what in this country has been a relentless economic, demographic, and cultural changes, you know, truly reshaping American life. And people diverge on whether that's a great thing or a horrible thing. Um, and, and those reactions to the change, the evolution of this culture has been uh, has been a major factor. Also kind of in the political vein, uh, you we see that our political parties have starkly divided over these trends. And it's created kind of this purification of the parties. So, you know, your Democrats and your Republicans are more ideologically homogeneous within and divergent between. So whereas both parties used to have a healthy mix of, of issues and, you know, some folks may may or may not agree with the whole so-called party, party line, we've become so entrenched and so purified that that's, um, that that's showing up more than ever. Um, again, on the personal part, you know, we've talked about for decades in the seminal book about the big sort. We're simply not around that many people these days who are different than us, right? Uh, we just know that, that by, by and large, I'm likely to be hanging out with somebody who looks just like me and thinks just like me. And whether that's at the macro level, kind of the, uh, the coastal elites versus, you know, inner America or just at the neighborhood level, we're seeing um, we're seeing that sorting and, and homogeneity in our networks. Balkanization of the media, which I think, you know, that that blame of the media, certainly we all have the, the, the very quick and easy ability to hear exactly what we want to hear from somebody just like us without ever having our ideas questioned or challenged. So that 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 proclivity and, uh, and, and ease with which we can go find our own facts to match our positions, uh, I think is tough. And related to that is this social media cacophony that we end up in where, you know, I, I hope to God that people would not say a lot of the things they say to each other online if they were actually looking another human being in the face. But we are able to hide behind that screen to go to town on our keyboard and just say the most vile things uh, to one another. And so, you know, certainly we're, we're, we're attempting to use social media for good and, and for promoting, you know, the, the idea of listening first to understand. But it certainly has the risk of, of elevating some of our most, most banal instincts as human beings as opposed to being you know, conducive to thoughtful and sober conversation. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll point to, Tom, there is something that, that I really wrestle with. Uh, myself in terms of, um, of of how how we can truly turn the tide of rising rancor and deepening division and this one this this one's kind of kind of tough to grapple with but but I think one of the causes frankly is that we haven't had a major external threat to this country since 9/11 and what we've seen over time is that when we have that and really this is just this is just using that same instinct but on a more groupish level right when there is that them for us as Americans to galvanize and unite around in opposition to, that's when we've seen historically um, a, a greater sense of unity, a greater sense of common identity. So thank God we haven't had that kind of threat, such as a major war recently. But that's the last time we were really reminded of and united around that common identity. And, and, and this touches on something called asteroid theory. So, you know, if the four of us are just at each other's throats because we cannot stand, you know, where the other person is coming from, and then we look up and by golly, if there's not an asteroid careening down towards us, well, suddenly we're on the same team. Um, and, and we're trying to figure out how to avoid this asteroid. Um, and, and, and that I think is such a powerful 
picture. But, you know, I believe that while we don't have that, you know, thank God, external threat right now where there's not an asteroid careening down on us, come to think of it, you know, with the Hurricane Dorian, you know, coming into the southeast and what we saw with Harvey in Houston, we see weather events create this, create, nobody's asking who's a Democrat, who's a Republican, who's black, who's white. We're coming together around our common humanity. But I think the position we're in now is that the asteroid, if you will, that we've got to unite against is from within. Is this, it is this threat of our own creation that is dehumanizing those with whom we disagree and seeing our fellow Americans as threats to be destroyed as opposed to human beings worth understanding. So, uh, barring an asteroid, <laughs> barring right. a, a, a cataclysmic event, uh, something very tragic and, and, and terrible. And, yeah. and we actually, what you're saying, we understand and we think that there is there's great validity in that, that, that those things that unite us are, tend to be those kinds of things. So, and, and we're certainly not wishing for them. Absolutely. Right. So where do you see the hope for the future then, you know, for our society and, and in personal relationships as well. I mean, we believe that it starts with our personal relationships, that those are the places where we, we, where we need to do the work, where we need to do the, the, the work of understanding and, and compassion and empathy in order to have the greater whole, the greater society be a place where, where the division is diminished, where the rancor is not so strong. So where do you see hope? Yeah, and, and, and honestly, uh, Michael, what, what I found is that, you know, we can all see, you know, the rising rancor and deepening division. We, we can see that at the surface level, but I've realized that there is another powerful force that, that you know, the, the four of us and so many others who are, who are on this mission together are facing, and it is that lack of hope. It is, it is people, and I'm sure you all have heard the same thing, who said, you know, this is great, good for y'all, but there, there is no hope. I don't think we can turn it around. Um, and so I think that's a real threat to the future. Yeah. We, don't, we actually don't, we don't actually, we actually don't hear the word y'all a whole, a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that we're above the Mason-Dixon line here. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so as we bridge this geographic divide, even in language, um, exactly. Um, yes, exactly. Folks, folks, uh, folks are concerned that uh, that we may not um, be able to turn it around, and I think that's really dangerous. And, and you guys well know, and I think the four of us, you know, share this personality trait of being being optimistic and being being hopeful. Um, but, you know, our hope, as Graham and I talk about it, is truly not just as a talking point, but really believing that every person who makes that commitment, which Graham articulated in the many levels therein of listening first to understand, tips the scales toward a stronger future for our nation. And as you said, Michael, better relationships in our daily lives. I think that simple act takes us a long way. And you don't have to take our word for it. We know that experts say the solution to this social polarization crisis is to, quote, cultivate more positive social connections, that that will alter our reasoning and our behavior. Uh, Another quote from a social psychologist, if you have at least one friendly interaction, you'll find it far easier to listen to what the other person is saying and maybe even see a controversial issue in a new light. And that as we've all experienced, the main way we change our minds is by interacting with other people. So I have fervent hope in the power of the practice that, that all of us on this in this conversation are 
are encouraging, which is that listening to one another. And yes, it is, you know, the one starfish at a time. It is the grassroots movement. It is changing and shifting and scaling the cultural norms around how we interact with one another, how we interact across differences. But we've seen it happen a million times. We've all seen it in our own lives. And so we just have to reach scale with that. And and my hope is not only knowing that that mechanism does work and and, and must work for this country, um, but also knowing that more and more people are having that moment, which the four of us have had at different times in our lives, but having that moment where they say, you know what, I've got some passionate views and that's important. I'm not going to compromise any of those principles, but I'm equally as concerned about the culture we've created for ourselves. And I want to invest a little bit in working on that and mending that frayed social fabric. Um, and we just, we have to turn it around. We actually often use the phrase that we don't change somebody by telling somebody our own perspectives. We change somebody's perspectives by modeling a better way. And yes, yes. Graham, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Pierce had brought up about social media and how in a lot of ways it's kind of like a cancer. Uh, how could mm -hmm. social media shift in your mind to help mend this frayed fabric? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of me wants to uh, resist a little bit the, the social media uh, being a cancer. I mean, I can see that as a, as a viable position given the way it tends to be used by some people. I think the same thing probably was said about, you know, the printing press and the telephone and the car and the airplane and every, every other technological advance that we've had in our society, you know, since the beginning of time, maybe even, you know, the hammer, like, Oh, what are we going to do now? We got this hammer, you know, <laughs> as, as a tool, it can be used, uh, you know, in very destructive ways, but it also can be used in very productive ways. And I think there's a lot of examples of social media focused organizations and campaigns that try to do good, um, both in this country and in other countries. There was a Dutch um, campaign that was um, circulated recently uh, among several people, um, listening people, International Listening Association, um, that, that was circulated. I can't remember the company's name at this point, but um, that there were basically come together kind of a campaign. Um, so, you know, I, I think we are trying to use it for for good um, with our daily messaging uh, across our many platforms. The fact that we have a Listen First Friday every week where we send out an inspirational message about how can you be more intentional um, has been Mathis, one of our uh, one of the other guys that was uh, with us in, in Hollywood. Uh, the last time we were together, right, he says, give people your attention, don't impose your intention. And, and that's what we're trying to do really with that Listen First Friday message. Um, and, and we're not the only ones that are we're sent, that are sending out these positive messages. There's, you know, there's Giving Tuesday, which, um, you know, was was really popular, you know, several months ago. It's it's still there, um, but but it's lost a little bit of its popularity. There's, um, you know, several democracy movements that are going around, like the, the you know the message with Jennifer Lawrence, where it's about change. So, um, I, I think it, it's and so it starts just like listening starts with the individual person. Um, you know, having a mindset of, you know, respecting other people and being non-judgmental. I think our social media use starts with that as well. Like, how am I using social media today to make this country better? What am I doing today to make my uh, people around me better and stronger? Or am I using social media and other platforms to uh, demean and, and demoralize? And 
if you and if if you're honest about what you put on your social media, uh, and do you know do some kind of self due diligence and look through your feed, I think you know th there's a pretty clear answer to to that for each individual person. And, and so, um, what are you going to do differently tomorrow, regardless of what you did yesterday and today? What are you going to do differently tomorrow to, mm. to make this a more positive place? Yeah, and let's clarify too. By no means do we think social media is a cancer because, like you guys, we are trying to use it for good. We actually had Ben Mathis on our program. Uh, I think he was our one of our early guest uh, guests, and we talked significantly about how we are all trying to put out positive messages because we do think it can be used for good and can be a real force for good. And uh, we have so many stories through our work and someone to tell to you of, of uting, utilizing social media, uh, specifically like private Facebook messaging with with folks to develop and foster deeper relationships. So we're not blasting the walls of social media for everyone to see our own viewpoints. Uh, we find that to be very helpful as, as opposed to, um, you know, talking to large groups, you're talking to one or two individuals privately. So we yeah. found that to be helpful. Rather than calling them out yes. and saying that you that's disagree. Right. It's yeah. like, hey, yeah. that, that just generally doesn't help yeah. uh, or change yes. people's minds or opinions. No. It often hardens them Yeah, and uh, creates division. And rancor and all those all those things that we're talking about you know guys we we could talk we could talk forever and we could listen forever to the, this conversation and we know that we uh we we need to go and we have one more question to ask you i mean one of the things that we we all believe in we know you do we do too that there is a growing global movement of listening yes. that's occurring and how would you define that and how do you know that it's happening you know for as we as we wrap up today I'd like to close with that yeah we we've studied you know successful social movements um over history and 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 that's been so instructive to see empirically what has and hasn't worked and some of these are still present uh today to varying degrees of success but um you know a lot of things stuck out to me from that research but a couple um, that we're really trying to enact with you all is that we know from successful social movements that change is possible with the advocacy of vast networks of individuals and organizations using messages that connect with our human core. So we've, we've tried to build out and catalyze this vast network, the 250 organizations in the Listen First Coalition who are moving in a coordinated way in an aligned fashion to create a movement that can reach the mainstream and using, as you all talked about, and as you all are doing on social media, as Urban Confessional is doing on social media, using those messages that connect with our human core. And the other point is that the success of winning movements have been determined by the strategic choices winning movement leaders made and how they got their movements myriad parts aligned to advance a common cause. So that that's really the, the position um, that and the function that, that Graham and I and, and our broader team um, have adopted is just realizing how much incredible value is out there with someone to tell it to, with Urban Confessional, with, with the other, you know, 248 plus organizations in the coalition and trying to see how those pieces can be aligned in a way that advances a common cause and makes it something bigger than any one of us. You know, when we look at what we're asking people to do and when we then measure those things, we want to see how many people are actually 
putting the spirit of listening first to understand into practice by positively connecting with people they encounter every day. But then how many folks are having those intentional conversations that welcome people of a diverse perspective? And those are the ones that we're amplifying on the National Conversation Project platform. And then to your point on social media, let's get this growing course of people sharing their ideas and stories with that Listen First hashtag, which allows all of us to see and measure, as I mentioned, 5 million people during National Week of Conversation alone. And certainly, again, that fundamental pledge, I will listen first to understand how many people are taking hold of that, how many organizations are making that part of of their DNA. And, and so the more people we get involved in promoting this mission, the more cultural influencers, listen first leaders, as we call them, who are using their megaphones to get the message out, um, the more people will have that that second thought will be better today, as Graham said, than they were yesterday, and really try to listen first to understand in that next interaction, knowing that at scale, that is what can turn the tide of rising ranker and deepening division in this country and mend our frayed social fabric. Yeah, well, we just, again, applaud you guys for the work that you're doing. It's so important in this time that we find ourselves in, uh, both in our country and around the world. Uh, if people want to learn more, where, where could they learn more? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so they, our website is listenfirstproject.org. You can follow our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We, we may even, you know, hook up on a dating, you know, Twitter app there. <laughs> uh, not promising anything. Hey, it's about relationships. It's about relationships. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can email me, Graham That's at right. listenfirstproject.org. So a lot of ways that you can connect either personally with us or start following the Listen First pledges on the website. We'd encourage people to sign that, um, which will also kind of get you into the newsletter rotation that we send out once a week. So lots of different ways to connect and depending on how people prefer to do that, they've got a lot of options. We also just uh, wanted to add, make sure you go to our discoverlistening.com webpage and you'll yes. get an opportunity to see the public service announcement that we filmed with the guys from Listen First and, and uh, Ben from Urban Confessional. And that was just a, a great venture we created together. Yes. Yes. Such an honor to partner with you all on that. Yeah, it was absolutely. an honor. It is an honor. So Graham and Pierce, thank you for being our guests today. There is a rich conversation and we appreciate it so very much. And we, we know it's just a start. There's so much more to be done, so much more to say, so much more to hear. And uh, we're grateful that all of us can be part of this movement. And uh, we truly believe that we are about changing the world. So thank you. Amen. Thank you for your heroic work, partners. And thank you for having us. Thank you, Michael. Once again, thank all of you for joining us and listening today. We hope that uh, you'll be able to, to listen to all of our podcasts. And we encourage you, in fact, to subscribe to them. Because when we subscribe, we, are, we, we generally will listen more. And we hope that these that these broadcasts, these, these podcasts are stimulating, inspiring, and encouraging. And they teach, they will teach you something. So please, on, you know, on all of the, the you know, potential possible uh, social media platforms, you, you can find the Someone to Tell the Two podcast. And we hope that you will and that you will enjoy them all. So thank you again. <laughs>